Ladies and gentlemen, before we go into this week's episode of Conjectural Technologies, a venture industries podcast, uh, we wanted to take a moment to kind of reflect on some of the things that have been happening over the past week and express our support for the people who are out there right now protesting in support of equal justice under the law for everyone. Um, I know that this has been a very difficult time for many people, and this is a very dangerous time for many people. With uh, COVID-19 still making the rounds, um, people are literally risking their lives to protest what has been happening to their communities. And this is something that I have been very um, passionate about for a long time. Most people don't know this. I was a journalist for many years and have actually you know been with many newspapers across the country and i have been covering this particular topic and this is something that i've been interested in for a long time because i have seen how these um these issues have played out in different cities across the country and how my own life has been impacted by uh police violence and we do support the police who are working to make a change in their communities and in their departments and their organizations. I do not think that most people join the police department uh, out of anything other than a legitimate desire to serve their community. And it is a shame that we have gotten to the point where the death of George Floyd has sparked off, uh, sparked off so much rage that has been latent and sitting unexpressed for so long. And I am so excited that we are in a moment right now where as a country, we are able to take a look at this very serious issue and hopefully move forward together in a way that protects black lives just as it protects white lives and everyone else. I strongly support equal treatment under the law and it is devastating to see that that has not been realized. And it is only by working together to create a more perfect union that we will ever get there. And if you feel like you want to do something and maybe protesting isn't uh, feasible for you, uh, definitely seek out legal aid for uh, other, you know, organizations and, uh, you know, law offices that are helping out protesters. Um, also, uh, go ahead and bully your Congress people about the uh, Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. Um, this thing's been caught up in Congress since 1955, I believe, and uh, Senator Rand Paul is the only holdout on it. Um, and basically, you know, this is going to, it's a common sense, you know, legislation that makes lynching illegal and not, you know, just a, a passively like incidental, any other kind of murder. No, it makes it legally a hate crime. Um, so again, like, you know, this is one of the big moments where we can, we can really bug some, some, uh, legislators and hopefully get some good out of it. And 
you know, help push through some legislation that uh, should have been passed a long, long time ago. One other thing that I would recommend is that anyone genuinely interested in police reform should check out joincampaignzero.org. That's joincampaignzero.org and take a look. They have 10 very clear data-based solutions to help decrease police violence in our country. Go Team Venture! Gary, nobody cares about the Venture Brothers. People care. Well, just be quiet. All right, fine. People really need to know this stuff. Because, like, you don't get high and it becomes a weapon of mass destruction. You know what I mean? I don't know, man. Charlie Sheen destroyed some lives. Mostly his. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. So, uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, ready to slide in when you are. Oh, you better lube up. Suggested applications to the buttocks and inner thighs. Welcome out, ladies and gentlemen, to another fun-filled, curfew-fueled, quarantine-derived episode of Contextual Technologies a Venture Industries podcast. I am one of your hosts, Professor Brock Savage. With me, as always, is my longtime companion, Beast Lamode. Uh, see Kyle, or, you know, whatever it is I need to say to not get shot by the, the police rolling down the street. <laughs> and joining us all the way from sunny Las Vegas, Nevada, we have the Vaude Villain. Hey, how's it going, guys? Well, you are in for a very special treat this evening, morning, or afternoon, depending on whenever you choose to listen to this fun film. Because I'd like tonight, to think uh, we're a good brunch podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> we're really more about second breakfast. <laughs> 11s, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Today, we are covering a pair of episodes in what may be the single longest episode we've ever done, or what may be a regular episode or slightly short episode. It depends on how it gets broken up and how long this takes. We are going into tonight's episode, a two-parter that aired beginning on August 24, 2008, the season finale of season Three, the family that slays together. And tonight's episode may, in fact, be considered the second episode in a trilogy, if you consider what happened immediately before this, episode, this series of episodes, the arc that wrapped up with episode 11 of season three, The Or. And in many ways, as I understand, they looked at this as a trilogy, not just a pair of episodes well and what happens a lot with the show is uh they restructure as the season's going on um 
you know, a lot of stuff that should be uh, a season finale actually gets tacked on to the beginning of the next season, hence why we have the Morphic Trilogy as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very similar situation there, only this time they took like a, what would have been a, a season premiere and essentially stacked it on the back of, of season three, um, which I think actually pays off a lot because, yeah, Orb is almost like a, a great little prologue. And then you have, like, this lead-in to this story. It's almost, uh, I don't know, kind of like the venture version of the Bourne trilogy that way. <laughs> <laughs> like, when they switch from Jason, like, who is it, the, you know, Matt Damon, Jason Bourne to... Uh, Jeremy Renner. Yeah, like Hawkeye. Um, <laughs> which, by the way, uh, if you've seen the Kevin Smith, uh, was it a Jay and Silent Bob reboot, and how they work in the... Uh, was it uh, Born, like Loki, Reborn in Italy, like his Reborn trilogy? Yeah. <laughs> it was That was cheeky. I loved it. Well, speaking of cheeky, we are in the second episode, I'm sorry, third episode of our Brock block. This is our Brock finale, our Brock stravaganza. This is the culmination where once you've enjoyed the delicious treats that have come before, we now get to eat our broccoli. We are yeah, gonna this is our uh, Brock Samson superstar. Uh, Brock <laughs> Samson and his Technicolor murder. Coat. Well, uh, I was wondering the, the, uh, the last temptation of Brock. Like, yeah. <laughs> I like the Brock I invented, not the Brock you are. Uh, who will go forth into the world telling legends of our favorite Swedish murder machine? I believe it will be Hank. He is the Brock Apostle. <laughs> and uh, that's very much, uh, you know, evident in this episode and kind of leading into season four. You see, you know, how just how attached uh, Brock is or um, Hank is to Brock. Also, I mean, you know, going throughout the course of the episode, you really see how dedicated, um, you know, Brock is to the entire Venture clan, especially the kids. Like, you know, uh, in the last episode, you know, we got the very sincere, well, I say the last, our last recording that we did, um, <laughs> not, not the last episode canonically adventures, but, uh, the last episode recorded, we t talked about his very sincere go team venture, right? Uh, and this is very much those words in action, um, you know, over the course of like, you know, the, the next couple of episodes that we're going to talk about. And there is a lot to talk about with this double episode episode. Uh, we are going to cover quite a bit and just fair warning, normally for the average episode, I'm going to have around three pages of notes for this pair of episodes. I have nine and Beast has done even more research than normal, and Vaughn Villain actually watched the episodes. So we are in great shape. Well, and not just in the learning bed. Like, he was awake this time. <laughs> <laughs> so, Did that during the daylight hours. With that, uh, Vaughn Villain, I was wondering if you can't set the scene as we open up tonight's episode. Um, I'm actually going to do this with a trick opening. Do you want the real episode that aired opening or the one that they had written that they wanted to do? I haven't actually found it shot yet, but there's a great opening that they didn't end up using. Have you uh, happened to see that one? Oh, please. Apparently no one has, but please explain uh, it to uh, me. So actually, no, uh, I got this one off of um, uh, the recommendation over here for Mantis Eye. They had the coverage on it, so... Uh, 
there's a, I don't want to go through the entire thing. They literally have it fully scripted out here. But the gist of it is that it opens up in um, the Venture Compound. Um, essentially, a scene goes down where the monarch kills Brock, uh, beheading him. Uh, they capture uh, Dr. Venture. Uh, they've got the boys, the robot, everything. Uh, Dr. Mrs. is very turned on by this because finally the monarch is getting what he's finally always set out to do. And then uh, essentially it pulls back to reveal that it's 21 in like a hollow projector room and he's imagining all or had this all programmed and he's like living out this bizarre weird fantasy. Uh, so I just like the idea that they gave us right off the bat how they said that they want to really change things up for this episode. Uh, right off the bat we got a death but apparently we'll never get to really see that one. Um, but the actual opening is the uh, tail end from the cut from last week's episode. Uh, with Brock killing Adrian. Well, and I gotta tell you, I'm really sad we didn't get to see this one because uh, he makes a great Westworld joke. Um, yep. And not the, yep. the television series, which I'm a huge fan yep. of, but definitely like the old school uh, Yul Brenner, um, you know, man in black uh, thing. And also uh, being a huge like uh, X-Men fan, you know, anytime you get like a danger room mm-hmm. kind of, you know, shout yep. out, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. Or Star Trek. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, with Star Trek, it wasn't so much a danger room as it was a pleasure can, and you and I both know it. <laughs> there's, there's even an episode in Star Trek, uh, oh, oh, blast it all. Um, it's the one with Captain Janeway. I'm a terrible nerd. I haven't been, it, yeah, Voyager. In Voyager, where Tuvok is coming up on his pond far, and he's got to do his thing. So uh, they program his wife into the holodeck, right? And, like, he comes out afterward, and he's, like, all, you know, <laughs> Brock coming out of the bathroom relieved. <laughs> and he's like, so how was it? He was like, well, my wife's ears were a millimeter too short on one side, but other than that, I guess it was all right. <laughs> but, yeah, no, totally more pleasure can than danger room. Uh, I am waiting for the day the Japanese perfect this. Oh, me too, man. I can't it's wait to step solve. into the Matrix. <laughs> it, it, dude, it, it's going to solve all of our... If we're not already there, man. Right? Yeah, it's just it's going to solve so many problems. So, uh, we have opened up on Brock killing Adrian, and Beast, can you explain why Brock is killing Adrian? So, uh, through the events of uh, Orb, uh, we find out, like, you know, Brock had a larger mission, which was to kind of guard this, you know, crazy alleged doomsday device, right? Um... And then, basically, in the the course of this mission, uh, you know, they decide to terminate Bodyguard. And I love that little moment with Brock, because he's, like, confused. Because the spy world, like, Brock's a simple dude. And the spy world's complicated, so it's like, you know, Agent Terminate is like, well, wait, am I fired, or are you killing me? Uh, (laughs) And then, you know, we pick right back up from that, and he's, like, covered in blood and oil. And, like, he's got, like, a wrench, and he's just, you know... uh, Did you ever see... The Karate Kid reboot. Yeah. You know, where Jackie Chan builds the Sirocco every year and then crushes it on the... It's a very, like, you know, tender... He's totally, like, having that same emotional moment because he loves Adrian. Like, it's a part... Like, he has, he's he's in tune. Like, they have this quantum connection. He can tell if somebody's in his car from a continent away, and now he has to slay this car. <laughs> uh, why is the car trying to kill him? It's been taken over by something, Right. I assume it's been programmed somehow to try and kill him because when he gets home finally from the orb adventure, it comes after him in a very Christine-like fashion. Uh, for anyone who's familiar with Stephen King's book and the movie uh, by the same name. So uh, 
Adrian is in pieces. Brock is torn up about it. Uh, Adrian's pretty torn up about it, too. So uh, that's when uh, the family comes in. And it, I love the little names that they have for it. Each one of them calls it something different. Like, oh, no, why, why'd, you do, why'd you do this in the Mayhem Mobile? I thought you called it Danger Hawk. Adrian, her name was Adrian, right? He is just taking his car apart and he's just absolutely distraught and he's trying to figure out what he's going to do because he knows that a powerful organization is coming to kill him and he's trying to figure out who it would be and based on the events that we just saw in the previous episode orb he knows who it is he knows that it's got to be osi who's doing this to him uh because of the uh failure to protect the doomsday device in what actually turned out to be one of Doc's finest moments. We'll, we'll have to get to that a little bit later. Um, well, and okay, uh, here, here's a fun idea. So last episode we covered uh, Assassin Andy 911. So uh, not to jump too far ahead, but, you know, spoiler, we find out that uh, it might not have been OSI. It may have been another spy organization with somebody else at the head. And our last episode was their opportunity to futz with Adrian. Because I've been mulling this over because, you know... Uh, have you been mulling it over or mulling it over? I've been mulleting it over. <laughs> that's what you do when you think about Brock. Um, but yeah, no, it's been, you know, kind of in the back of my mind that, like, why, how would the car attack him? And then, it, you know, it dawns on me, you know, a lot of those aftermarket, aftermarket parts that he has for his hot rod are probably, like, you know, military-specific. <laughs> Military-grade. <laughs> Yeah, like, you know, uh, above military grade, espionage grade weapons. Like, right. Well, um, we, we get to see Hunter's car, and I imagine that uh, Brox might be similarly equipped. Right. Uh, at one point, he's like, give me some time to think, and then Dr. Venture comes in with uh, give him time, boys, thinking is new to him. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, I'll be honest with you, uh, that actually shows you a lot about their relationship. Brock is, is a very multidimensional dude that we, you know, kind of discussed in, in our Assassin Annie 911 episode. And he's, you know, again, a simple guy, but that doesn't mean he's tactically proficient. I mean, on some level, he's very good at connecting the dots and, and common sense. Uh, it, it's the more nuanced things that get him, like, you know, Pischetti. <laughs> right. Well, connect the dots, he does. And he comes to the conclusion that he is being targeted by none other than the spy organization, OSI, that he's been working for for years. At which point, he starts barking orders. He needs everybody to get dressed, get on the X-1 plane, and get ready to take off. And he starts yelling at Helper to get a course plotted, but Helper comes in and Helper is not thrilled with what he sees. Why is that, Von Miller? Uh, because he's uh, worried about the war between uh, man and uh, Brotherhood machine. Helper is immediately on guard when Brock starts coming toward him with a wrench in his hand because he sees what just happened to Adrian. So Helper assumes that Brock is going to kill him too and immediately goes into defensive mode with his... Uh, Plasma torch and spinning fan blade of doom. Oh, dude, and like machine guns that like fold out of his chest. Like, yeah, really. Like, Helper is about to go toe to toe to Brock, knowing exactly what kind of man this is. Right. Like, this is how dedicated Helper is here. Like, you know, and I love like you know the Hank's translation. He's like he often speaks of the oncoming war between man and the Brotherhood of Machine. <laughs> like, you know, uh, Skynet is here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love, by the way, that the boys both speak helper. Right? <laughs> yeah. it, it's like, so 
love Wait. speaking Wookiees. Well, and do you know who does the voice for Helper? Who? Soulbot. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Thanks, Pete. I, I always so, love the ending of the show, like the earlier seasons for that. Like I thought it was very reaffirming. I was like, I love you too, Venture Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Hank and Dean have translated that Helper's anxiety is the fear that Brock's going to hurt him. So Brock puts the wrench down, calmly approaches Helper, and says, no, 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 you're fine. We need to chart a, uh, plot a course for Spider Skull Island, with which point Doc Venture is horrified. He's like, I don't want to go. You know, why can't we just go to the panic room like we always do? Turn on the electric fence, and people are coming for me. Turn on the electric fence, and let's go to bed. And at which point Brock reveals, they're not coming for you, Doc. They're coming for me. And then come they do. Because at that point, lights come in. You hear helicopter blades. And then who should appear? But Molotov. And this is where you get a um, glimpse into her broader, uh, you know, place in the Ventureverse. She's a spy mistress as well as, you know, you know, kind of the hunter-gatherer's version of spy master. Like, she's got her own organizations uh, and a Joan Jett like shout out I love it uh, the Black Hearts I totally see her like rocking out to Joan Jett and the Black Hearts with her like Sony Walkman in the 88 Olympics right. like you know on the bus for Moscow like yeah one day like I'm going to graduate the Red Room and I'm going to have my own spy company and we're going to be called the Black Hearts it's going to be so rad right <laughs> so what is it that Molotov says when she appears with her League of Assassins? She simply says, car trouble? Looking at the wreckage, yeah, I think that about sums it up. And that launches us into the credit. And from there, we bounce over to the Monarch, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch, 21 and 24, as well as the Moppets, in the car. What's going on here? Well, the Moppets are, are they're on their little, like, uh, Vespa, like, you know, pupa Vespas. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, and this is actually uh, a little bit of what I like to call 24 shadowing. <laughs> um, and you've got a great joke, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and cop to this. Totally done it. Uh, 21 peeing in the cup in the back of the car. <laughs> He's like, stop talking to me. I can't. I can't go when you're talking to me. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've totally. It's even worse when you're trying to pee in a bottle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there comes a an age when that doesn't work anymore unless you've got like a bigger mouth, bought uh, like a big Gatorade or something. I was in a fraternity when I went to college. I went to a very unique college called Wabash College in Crawfordsville, Indiana. Uh, it is one of the, it is the last true all-male school left in the nation. One of my buddies uh, who was in my pledge class with me was actually in the Army National Guard. And uh, I remember him once telling me that pledgeship was harder than boot camp, <laughs> which I thought was interesting because pledging at that fraternity lasted forever and came with some really unique challenges. And one of the things that uh, we ended up doing was uh, we had to drink a whole bunch of liquid in a very short period of time. And then we were thrown into a vehicle and driven to uh, Indianapolis. But it wasn't a direct drive. And it was a very circuitous route. And let me tell you, um, the need to go to the bathroom was very expertly engineered by people who had been through it themselves. You were not allowed to go. You couldn't, they weren't going to stop. The whole point was to just try and make it as far as you could. Uh, but let me tell you that uh, 
it was uh, some of my brethren did not make it very far and ended up having to make use of whatever was laying around. And it was very uncomfortable to say the least because at that point, the driver started moving the vehicle. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. Um, You can probably guess it wasn't his car. Right. No, that's a rental. That's always a rental. Uh, That's rule number two. Uh, oh, it's a my grandpa, for years and years, up until the uh, day he died, actually kept one of those, like, I, I'm going to say old school, like, people should know what they are, but even, like, older people might find them obscure, like, a travel urinal for your car. Like, he kept that in his car, like, underneath the driver's seat for years and years, and, uh, you know, that's one of the weirdest memories I have of my grandpa, and that's why I'm <laughs> in my car. Like, that's why I'm not afraid to, like, bust out the cup and, like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> Yeah, I can... By the uh, way, like, if you ever see yellow Gatorade in my car... Don't drink (laughs) That's R. Kelly-flavored Gatorade as well. Yeah, I got to tell you, I bet it was actually more common to have to do that a long time ago because uh, gas stations and population centers were further apart and fewer and far between. Well, and he was an industrial electrician in the Rust Belt, so he did a lot of, like, startup and shutdown work for factories, and he traveled around a lot. And so, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Like, he was a pretty frugal guy. You know, we we come from very tight-fisted Scottish folk. (laughs) Hold on to your sheep. And and speaking of, like, tight-fisted Scottish folk, well, more so tight-fisted, right? So after, uh, like, you know, we finally get 21, uh, some satisfaction, some relief there, they're, you know, talking in the car, and hatred flies overhead in his hover tank. Um, And this is really, like the first glimpse of where you get, you know, Hatred's new relationship with the Venture family. Because he's been arching him, right, for this whole, like, season, kind of leading into it, and uh, the Monarch's really just been resenting it. And, you know, now he's trying to beat Hatred to the compound now. Yeah. We cut to Nightingales, and now we're to Brock and and Hunter Hold having on. a conversation. We're, we're not quite there yet. There are a couple oh. things about this real quick I want to take a, a, a moment to look at. Uh, the first is that I love the way Hatred has been arching Dr. Venture. Uh, I forget what episode it was, but they show up and they realize, oh, I, I think it's actually perchance to Dean, where he shows up and they realize that they've got, uh, like they got their times mixed up, AM versus PM. Right. And it's like, well, can you just sign off on this? <laughs> like, I, I need you to sign this waiver saying that I've effectively arched you. Like, I, I, I got to get my hours in. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, it, it's a very, uh, uh, I don't want to call it perfect, but the, there's no heart to it. Well, and to the, the opposite of that, later on, like much, much later on, we see Monarch arching somebody at which point, like, you know, he gets paid, you know, paid off, and, like, you know, 21 comes, like, uh, yeah, could you go ahead and sign off on these arch hours, and it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, like, uh, it, it's it's the fun, like, bureaucracy of, of professional antagonism. This is going to be really weird, but, like, oftentimes in my head, I do sit around and wonder, like, what the forms look like. 
<laughs> in, like, government bureaucracy, you have, like, you know, all these official forms. Like, I just filled out my taxes. And, like, you know, you send all that in, and it's, like, you know, a J-71F, blah, blah, blah. Like, so I want to see, like, the villain forms. <laughs> you know it looks the exact same. Uh, the difference is you have to list all the henchmen who participated. You've got to list, like, what acts of aggression were taken, did they meet the, like, codes and standards? Uh, you know exactly, you know that there are henchmen who have no business being part of that team, but they're kind of like uh, Tim Robbins and Shawshank Redemption. He's the only, the, you know, he's the only guy who can do the taxes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I could totally see that guy, like, on Dr. Z's team, like, listen, you're a blunderer. All right, but you make really good coffee, Ted, and we're going to let you slide. Yeah, exactly. Like, you get to live. We also get the chance uh, to bounce back to Brock, who is convinced that OSI is on its way to kill him, at which point Maul confirms this, saying, who do you think hired me to kill you? Now, she is there with her league of hot assassins, and she and Brock have a very tense standoff at first because he is got her by the neck with a knife at her throat, she flips him off, and uh, and I don't mean that she gives him the bird. She actually flips him over her onto the ground, at which point she reveals that she was hired by OSI to kill him. And he, uh, she says, of course I didn't take the job. Now, at this point, Brock's like, oh, was that because, you know, you want to keep me safe? She's like, no, I didn't want anyone else to kill you, right? Uh, he also, uh, she also gets to essentially run through the catalog of people that OSI has hired to take him down. And we get a really interesting introduction here. And our three assassins are presented in almost like uh, Tarantino-esque vignette as she's running through them in voiceover. Our first is Heinrich Triggermensch, or he goes by the codename Air Trigger, Hair Trigger. Uh, did you get a chance? to read the bios on these people as they flashed up on the screen. These are so good. There's obviously time spent on these. Uh, Codename, Hair Trigger. History, Olympic biathlete, 95 to 98. He is a costume designer for East German musical theater. <laughs> Occupation, assassin. Specialization, expert mar marksman, pistol whipping, and weapons fetishist. He is from East Germany. His last known whereabouts are the submissive dungeon in London. His identifying characteristics are blonde hair, taste in fashion and grooming leaned sympathetically toward members of industrial bands from the late 80s to the mid-90s. Dangerous, both in misguided sexuality and physicality. <laughs> <laughs> Go Fish, whose name is Russell Sturgeon. He, his history is unknown. His occupation, assassin. He specialized in, and I love this, aquatic annihilation, moist murder, sea slings, and liquid lynching. Liquid lynching. Is that just yeah. drowning? I, I, they were just going for things that started with the same letter, and it worked. His last known whereabouts are the ocean. His identifying characteristics are facial scar of a left eye, voice damage from crushed trachea, penchant for dated nautical-themed apparel, and facial hair. <laughs> 
and we get to our third assassin, my personal favorite, Jean-Claude Latour. It's said that his birthday is 23rd December 1968, but then falsified to 1985. He is too egotistical to have a code name. He is a game hunter, son of a billionaire, and he is an assassin and once male model. He specializes in kendo, exotic weaponry, boomerang, shuriken, rumi, comma, batarang, bullet, etc. He's originally from France. His last known whereabouts were Comic-Con and his identifying characteristics, dark hair, facial hair fluctuates between pencil mustache and stole patch, trim, muscled physique, clothes horse, expensive sweets, etc. Extreme egoist, highly dangerous. So we've learned everything that we need to know about these guys here at the beginning, except how they're going to try and kill Brock Samson. So kind of going back down the rundown here, right? Air Trigger is a uh, play on a Udo Kier character from My Own Private Idaho. Uh, if you're familiar with that film, I'm actually unfamiliar, but I know it has Keanu Reeves in it. And so uh, he plays a... Uh, Udo Kier is a German actor. Isn't that River Phoenix? River Phoenix is also in it, yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he's a guy who, uh, you know, loves his motorcycle, and he's a bit of a, you know, a fetishist about it. They referenced another um, German actor who did a lot of, like, sci-fi movies. He was in a Nosferatu. Uh, yeah, Klinsky. Um, Klaus, Klaus Kinski. Yeah, Klaus Kinski. Yeah. Um, and that was a weird pull because uh, I got to be honest, like I'm I'm into some obscure stuff, and I did not know a single one of his movies. Um, <laughs> I took a quick run down the list of his movies, and the few that I recognized, he was like nobody in them, pretty much. Uh, the only thing I really noticed on there was he was in Doctor Zhivago '65, and I was like, right. oh, who the oh, nobody in there? He wasn't really anyone. Yeah, it was a weird one. Was that very much Doctor Zhivago, much like War and Peace, had like 1,200 characters? <laughs> Like, yeah. How do you film that? Wow. I mean, uh, is that why Doctor Strangelove has so many characters? Is that a riff on Doctor Zhivago? Anyway, uh, no. Uh, Klaus, Klaus Kinski is definitely where you get the a lot of the visual reference for the character. Um, and then you move on to Go Fish, and Go Fish is supposed to be Green Arrow, but with fishing lures. <laughs> Um, like, you know, when they're doing it, they didn't even, like, I was listening to the commentary, they didn't even make a an Aquaman reference. They actually even said they accidentally made him look like Banshee from <laughs> X-Men. <laughs> um, but then, like, later on, you do see him have kind of that, uh, uh, like, scale-type old-school Iron... Uh, um, Aquaman armor, um, you know, from the, uh, like, blonde hair Arthur Curry days, you know, and, and then Latour, uh, it's, of course, like, my favorite as well, um, because he's also a big fan of Silver Age comics, uh, <laughs> and, uh, he's a riff on Craven the Hunter. Craven, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so instead of, like, you know, a lion, like, you know, they put, like, the, the elephant chest, which looks, I mean, it's cool looking, but it is ridiculous looking. Yeah, I got that hit with a shrink ray or something to get it so it would actually fit on his chest, because there's no way an actual elephant. So, uh, Jean-Claude Latour reminded me a lot of the villain from Ocean's 12. <laughs> like, he, and I actually, I was like, okay, this has got to be a trope, but which came first? And Ocean's 12 came two years prior to this episode. So, he, that, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what got me, uh, in terms of that reference. Uh, my favorite part about, uh, Hair Trigger 
is uh, it essentially he's animated like it, it, like an Eon Flux character. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I love Eon Flux, right? Like the whole liquid television thing. Like Eon Flux is my favorite of that whole batch. And uh, they, you know, there's even a direct call out scene a little bit later where he's licking the gun. You know, he has <laughs> weapons fetishes. And that is straight up. Like, I mean, it's like, okay, let's let's take Peter Chung and just Peter Chung the hell out of it. All right. Well, so, and that's something that pops up a lot. I'm I'm in, in, in I'm inclined to believe that uh, Jackson Public and Doc Hammer have some very interesting bedroom lives because again, we see, you know, venture fetish. Uh, this is the second form of like technology fetish we've seen. Yeah, the first was in the very first episode with the ninja. Yeah, with uh, Otaku Sinzuri, yeah, and his whole, like, you know, uh, death, you know, uh, uh, doomsday fetish. But yeah, like, this guy straight up licks a hot gun barrel. That's immediately the opposite of the scene from A Christmas Story, where he licks the cold telephone pole. Yeah, now, this is when, after being introduced to our three assassins, we get Brock going on the lamb. And Brock going on the lamb means, I'm going to pack the family into a jet, and go to a strip club. But is he there for his own edification, or is he there for something else? Well, first off, let's talk about how disappointed Hank must have been to find out, like, this is not a family trip, this is a danger trip. Because, <laughs> like, going to the strip club with Brock is probably in his, like, top ten list of coolest things to ever do. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, hell, Venturestein got to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh... Oh, uh, shoo. Maybe that's going to be, like, Hank's uh, uh, final, like, you know, at the very end of the series, the very end, when Hank has become a man and proven himself and has earned Brock's respect as well as his love, Brock is going to signal that he's made it by taking him to a strip club. Well, uh, later on, they do, like, Brock uh, totally teases Dean with a moment like that. You think he's about to... Uh you know, hand over, uh, spoiler alert, you know, they, they rebuild Adrian. Uh, Adrian makes a comeback. Uh, so, yeah, like, you know, that one scene where they go to hand off the keys to Dean, and he's like, well, you're supposed to be the smart one. Get the heck out of here. Like, uh, so on one hand, like, maybe that would happen, but then on the other hand, it's totally like, you know, making, uh, you know, Hank essentially go break the 20s at the strip club. Like, <laughs> Yeah, buddy, uh, I'm going to need you to go get me some more singles. <laughs> yeah, so they're visiting Nightingales because they need to go see Hunter Gathers, who is undercover as a stripper there. Uh, he goes to confirm what he feared, and Hunter gives him that confirmation, but he's giving him the information secretly. Because he's undercover, he has to pretend, or I'm sorry, not pretend, but actively give Brock a lap dance so that no one catches on. Uh, I also want to point out that uh, they've made sure that Hunter looks exactly like Hunter, just with big, beautiful tits. He still has his, like, 10 o'clock shadow. Oh, like, yeah. And when they do, like, the reverse, where, like, Hunter is, is uh, you know, grinding up on Brock, you get to see a lot of, like, the old people back texture. <laughs> like, you know, the, the liver spots and stuff. Like, it was uh, it was a little gross. Um, also, uh, that is the bartender who uh, gives uh, Brock a hard time about losing his uh, license to kill in a much earlier episode. Right. 
Um, and also, something I'd love to point out uh, in this scene is if you pay attention through the course of the dialogue, uh, Hunter actually gives you some solid, like, strip club etiquette pointers. Truly. Would you like to reveal these pointers for the members of our listening audience? Well, obviously, I mean, you've got to buy a drink to keep them engaged and not to get them in trouble with the boss. You know, you don't want the to occupy the dancer's time when they could be making money, mm-hmm. right? Also, you know... Uh, not being handsy. Now, of course, you know, the whole play on that is, is Brock has to, you know, get kind of handsy in order to get his, like, documents for uh, his new identity and his keys. Yeah, but generally Hunter, speaking, Hunter that's a no-no. For Brock. Hunter has got all this stuff that Brock needs, but he's got it hidden in his very tight clothing and outfit. So uh, he's trying to set up a good, I, I don't even want to call it a con, but facade, for the bartender and the rest of the guests. So oh, dude, he even oh, slaps him in like, you know, oh, I can handle this one, Jimmy. Yeah, like, he's giving Brock instruction, like, tip me, right? So he puts a dollar in and then pulls out uh, it, some information. It's like, your name is Jesus Chalfaz. You love the History Channel. You're an electrician from Texas. Uh, and he says, fill my tip. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to need a set of wheels. He's like, okay, you can have my car keys but you're not going to like looking for him, and then starts thrusting his crotch into Samson's face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, could you imagine putting your, your hand in your parent figure's bathing suit area? No. No. That, that, mm. <laughs> so now, Hunter has made sure that Brock has everything he needs to be successful on the lamb. He's given him a, a new identity. He's given him a list of XOSI operatives that he can go to for help, and he's given him a wad of cash, and a set of keys. With that information and those supplies, they get to head outside. But we bounce over to the Venture Compound, where the Monarch and his crew have arrived in the house after a significant amount of time has passed because they just realized the front door was open. But 24 says, at least we now have the entire sewer system mapped out. So it has been conceivably hours of them trying to find a way into the compound without realizing the front door was open the entire time. Well, and that comes back up in Operation Prom. That's how they get into the compound is through the the sewer system they just mapped out. Mm -hmm. I cannot wait for Operation Prom. So this is when the Monarch calls a huddle. It's game time. So he's got a, a, a very explicit instruction for each of our team members. The Monarch is, of course, going to go find and subdue Dr. Venture. Uh, and then he asks each of the other groups what they're going to The Moffats, they're like, we're going to go locate and kill, at which point the Monarch corrects them, not kill, subdue the Venture boys. Then 21 and 20, uh, his wife is going to uh, locate and seduce, subdue Brock Sampson. And 21 and 24 are going to locate and subdue, slash, no, you can kill them. It's just a damn robot. Helper. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so we've got our four teams, the Monarch, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch, the, the Pupa twin, and 21 and 24 with their assignments. 
21 actually had a different assignment. He was meant to go find Hatred. They were they were tracking him to the compound, but 21 immediately just gets pissed off because he still has not gone to the bathroom, even though they went through a sewage system that they just mapped out. He is yeah. still shaking in his boots. Uh, he's supposed to do something else in his boots, and I don't know why you wouldn't go in the sewer system. Is he just like a I literally have that as a note on my thing right here. Is you were just in a sewer. Why didn't you pee? <laughs> well, and again, there, there weren't yeah, any cups. Weren't. Like, I mean, you can't, you can't not pee in a cup. Like. Why do you think Howard Hughes was so cool? <laughs> right. So uh, we've got the setup with uh, the Monarch and his team in the Venture Mansion going to accomplish their goals. Uh, then we bounce Bra- back to Brock coming out of the strip club. And then they are attacked by Hair Trigger. And then who should appear right in front of them but Brock Sampson, our favorite Swedish murder machine, who immediately knocks Hair Trigger back. And he starts trying to get the family on the X-1 jet so that they can escape into the night. But they don't want to leave without him, do they? He's putting everybody on the plane, and he's going to go, you know, run uh, essentially diversion. And uh, he hops in, you know, uh, what looks to be... Uh, you know, some version of, like, you know, the Hunter's, like, Aston Martin-esque hold spy on, car. Hold on, You've missed some very important moments here. One of which is that Hair Trigger keeps getting up, and Brock keeps knocking him down, hitting him over the head with weapons, or throwing knives at him. But he oh, keeps yeah. getting up. Then, the boys are trying to get Brock to come with them, but Brock doesn't want to expose them to danger. And so... You know, they're like, come on, Brock, we're family. He's like, no, you're not family. You're just a job. I don't love you boys. And makes them get on the plane. And you see the boys walk up the plane, Hank so reluctant. And then Brock turns around to find that Hair Trigger is gone and has started trying to shoot at him again. But at this point, he's able to hide behind Hunter's car and climbs in and starts taking off as the jet, the X-1, flies up into the sky, but there's a surprise in his back seat. Tank calling him out on, like, you know, the old yellow routine, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, it's like, come on, Brock, the Lassie routine? Yeah, I'm smarter than that. Well, and uh, then he's like, you know, put on your seatbelt. And he's like, you know, do you want to end up like Gary Busey? <laughs> and, and that, like, slayed me because it comes back around when, like, everybody's in the cockpit later. Oh, oh, wait and, for it. Wait for yeah. it. <laughs> so. And I, okay, so I, I remember Gary Busey. I don't know what they mean by. Oh, <laughs> is it just know? like, is that what it's Oh, look at some of the later stuff from here. Uh, the later era, uh, Gary Busey, what he looks like. Um, there was a show he's on on Comedy Central, like I'm with Busey or something, and it was like just before he completely lost it. Oh, yeah, no, he, yeah, poor Gary Busey. No, dude, so it, it was 1988. He was in a motorcycle accident, and he wasn't wearing a helmet. So his skull was fractured. He suffered permanent brain damage, all right? And so, you know, uh, he, uh, what was it, The his show was well after, I mean, it was, that was in the 90s, bro. Like, that was well after. Oh, yeah. But I think he held it together for a while, but in the last, like, 10, 15 years since that show, it's just been, like, a really bad fall for him. There's a reason he's not as much in the public eye anymore. He totally went the way of Randy Quaid. <laughs> <laughs> like, that guy went that guy? pretty hard off the deep end himself. I don't even think that there was an associated head injury. Like, that guy was just like, nope, I'm crazy. Oh, that sounds like a fun rabbit hole I needed to dive down. i got to go find out what happened to him. I just knew that he fell off the map. I didn't bother keeping track. Oh, there's a lot of, uh, like, public statements about, you know, 
they are messing with my taxes, they are taking my money. We live in a taxable society. Of course they're going to take some money, but, like, if you're not managing your money well, like, okay. Uh, You know that's not true. Look at what the... what look at what the U.S. government did to Joe Lewis. Okay, you cannot tell me you you are not comparing the significance of Joe Lewis to Cousin Eddie <laughs> from <laughs> Christmas Vacation. No, I'm not. I'm just suggesting that uh, being crazy. Suggestion denied. Doesn't always mean you're uh, you're completely crazy. Uh, so with that, or maybe it's one of those like. Uh, legends have a seed of truth in them somewhere. You can look at Randy Quaid and that, that's years of cocaine talking. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, we get Air Trigger in hot pursuit of Brock and Hank. And Brock being a really polite driver. Right. Uh, like he's, I'm sorry. <laughs> he's, also, he's also called Doc. And this is yet another moment where we get Doc being a horrible father. He's like, Doc, you missing something? Well, what, did I leave? So it's like, no, no, the boys. He's like, your son? Just to give you a sense of uh, where the boys rate, if there was any doubt in your mind. Uh, at which point, uh, he, Doc can come pick him up with the X-1, and he's asking Brock to flash his high beams so he can find him. While they're driving away, Hunter has a spy car, and there's all kinds of gadgets in a panel, and Hank wants to push the buttons. Brock does not want him to push the buttons. He's trying to figure out what the buttons do. The first button he pushes engages the James Bond headlight machine gun, which start going off. And unfortunately, there is a family vehicle in front of them, which starts getting a barrage of bullets. Brock apologizes, (laughs) as one does when you accidentally spray a motor vehicle with a family in it with machine gun. You know, that makes those times that I accidentally leave my high beams on not so bad. Right? So like they don't know how much worse it could be. This is also where we get hair trigger with his Eon Flux moment, like blah. And uh, Brock manages to deploy the oil slip. Of course, it's coming out in two, uh, almost like from the exhaust, like there's two little ports that come out the back. But hair trigger is not a motorcycle, so he's able to ride in the middle of these two slicks, even though Brock is trying to swerve across the road to make sure that he hits, he's catching up to them. And of course, Air Trigger is smoking a cigarette. He flicks the cigarette, catches the oil on fire, which means the flames are racing toward Brock's vehicle with our two heroes trapped inside. I don't know why this really makes me think of the Lethal Weapon series. Right. Just like the flicking a cigarette into oil during a car chase. Or the crow. <laughs> the crow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Drink it up, Hank. <laughs> right. And this turns out to have an additional benefit in that Doc can see the flames from the plane and says, oh, there you are. And then Hank starts pushing buttons. What does Hank's button do? Blows him right up the top of the car. It's the ejector seat. Brock lands on the brake, turns around, creates like a, a circle of flame behind him as he starts driving back the direction he came toward Hair Trigger. Can we call the ejector seat the MI6 swipe left? <laughs> <laughs> Like you're 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 on a honeypot date. The information isn't going the way you think it is, and you know the date's not going well either. Like swipe left. Poof. Yeah, yeah. It's just not going the way you want it to go. Let them go. If they come back, it was meant to be. 
<laughs> of course, if they should come back, they're standing over you in your sleep because they are also a spy. Well, they can also come back if you drive correct. So Brock is racing toward Hair Trigger, who is racing toward him on his motorcycle. Of course, they're driving through the flames that were created by the dropped cigarette, and it's obscuring the vehicle so that Brock manages to crash into Hair Trigger, who can't avoid being hit. Hair Trigger goes flying. But what was the real reason Brock slammed on the brakes? Was it to kill Hair Trigger or was it to catch Hank, who manages to glide back down to land precisely where he left off, albeit backwards, while Hair Trigger is lying in a pile of, uh, I'm sorry, in a pool of flames behind the vehicle. Brock takes off, racing toward the X-1 that has landed to allow them to ingress thanks to the loading bay. And... As they are flying off into the sky, we discover Hair Trigger is not dead. He whips out a, a rocket launcher, which he had hidden somewhere on his bike, maybe, and shoots the X-1. Well, and uh, uh, let's talk for just a second about how well Doc actually flies the X-1. Right? <laughs> for not being, like, good at a damn thing. Like, he whips that thing around and, like, you know, performs like a... Uh, semi mid air like a hovering like you know entrance like I mean uh, that was some pretty deft flying. You know as well as I do that Rusty Ventures had to fly that plane since his dad got hammered when he was six. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rusty, here's the keys. Yeah, he's like you'll be fine, Rusty. <laughs> Dude, what? Shut up and let Daddy think. What? And then there's a helper in the R2-D2 port just, like, freaking out. Yeah. Well, and, of course, this is also when they get hit that Brock yells, Busey! And everybody puts on their seatbelt, which means this is not a new reference for that family. Okay, uh, let's talk about how Hank and Dean both know explicitly who Gary Busey is. <laughs> <laughs> like, did they have a Gary Busey film fest? Well, like, it, it did is, they watch Drop Zone with Wesley Snipes? Like, <laughs> it is 2006. I'm pretty sure they haven't seen uh, Predator 2. Mm. I, uh, maybe, uh, maybe they think it's Nick Nolte. <laughs> Oh, another 48 hours. God. So uh, that is how long this podcast is going to take if we don't do this right. So, Well, just to make it go a little bit longer, the one thing I do want to miss before we leave the scene was um, I actually did a couple, a uh, little bit of research on it to make sure. You said it might be um, Aston Martin. Um, I actually think the car that Hunter decided to turn into his uh, super cool spy car, he went with the lamest car possible. I matched up the uh, the windows and everything on it. That is an AMC Gremlin. Um, he... <laughs> I, 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 I snapshotted it I, from a couple different angles, and I double-checked it. They made that thing an AMC Gremlin. Yeah, he went with that for his spy car, which if you're going to be going covert, it's sort of like in uh, Captain America Civil War when they're in the, the VW Bug because they're staying covert in that thing. It just kind of reminded me of that, and I was like, okay. And then all of a sudden you whip out the guns and the, the, the gas out the back and everything else. You got your spy car, but sneak away. You got your little AMC Gremlin. No one's going to think twice about you in that thing. No one is going to think twice about the Gremlin. And, of course, that thing is probably, like, super-powered. I mean, it's got guns and oil slicks. It's got a V18. They don't exist. This is one of eight. Yeah, no, I I'm getting a Yugo. <laughs> right. Like, I'm souping up a Yugo. <laughs> if it was featured in Cars 2, it is the perfect spy vehicle. So, from there, uh, they're going down. The X-1 has been hit. They're going down. But we get Helper to save the day. 
Brock is going to have to crash the plane. The landing gear doesn't work. But Helper crawls along the fuselage and takes position at the bottom where the landing gear would have been for the front part of the jet. And as the jet is going down, Helper, much to great personal destruction, manages to keep the jet's nose from crashing into the ground and killing his family. Well, and this is another one of those instances where Helper is being completely like boss. You know, the miracle on Hudson would have been a lot different with a Helper, <laughs> is all I'm saying. Uh, exactly. But, of course, the family has popped their own ejection seat, and we see Hair Trigger watching the jet crash and being so excited about it and experiencing a brief moment of ecstasy before he is crushed underneath the landing of that family-sized ejector seat, featuring the Venture family and Brock safely landing to the ground and crushing the person who was trying to kill them. And they talk about it like, you know, Brock didn't have like a, a crazy body count for the season, but they made up for it in this episode, <laughs> like in these two right. episodes. So from here... We bounce over to the Moffat, the Pupa Twins, who are going to find and subdue the Venture Brothers, who are presumably asleep in their learning bed, in their room. The Pupa Twins get in, they say it's time to subdue, and then one of them, uh, <clears throat> is it Tim Tom? Yeah, it's Tim Tom, pops open a stiletto. Like, he's going to go sub subdue with a stiletto. <laughs> so, he jumps in, starts stabbing, but to no avail. Instead, he comes out looking very disappointed and holding a completely destroyed Mr. Ricci. At which point he says, what would a teenager be doing with a stuffed animal in his bed? At which point Kevin says, the same thing I used to do. Tim Tom says, oh yeah, me too. Ugh, I can't believe I touched it. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty clear what they're referencing there. Oh, no, no, it's not. I don't, go ahead. Uh, go ahead, Bob Villain. Um, they're playing the uh, little bit of knuckle music. Um... <laughs> Whistling Dixie, I don't know. Uh, is it, okay, okay, here's a, here's a philosophical question. Is it technically yiffing if you're not in a furry suit and the other person is a stuffed animal? Um, I, I don't know what yiffing is. And are you anthropomorphizing a stuffed animal or is a stuffed animal a person in a suit? All I'm saying is it's not great to objectify women, but maybe if you womanize an object... Can you... Blaine Yiffing to me? Heavy petting zoo. Inter and outer course. Like, you know, you can go both ways with Yiffing. It's a, it's a unique experience. I've never done it. I uh, don't know that, like, uh, so part of me feels like anything with a specific phrase needs a more precise definition. And you may say to yourself, furry freaking, right, uh, to use a more family-friendly term, is not precise enough, to which I argue, no because those are two different experiences. Like, intercourse and outer course are two different things. You don't refer to them both, and you don't just say, oh, we went coursing, right? That's not I mean, like, that's not how you say it. For that's such how a I say it. Phrase, it does not, uh, I feel like there should be another word. Like, yiffing should pick one, and then we should have another word. Well, you know, I would really, like, I, I would love to have as strong an opinion on it, but I'm not a furry. <laughs> 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 Listen, my whole fetish really revolves around uh, a Star Trek thing, like a very James Kirk, uh, green lady, red lady-like thing. I just want to taste the rainbow. Um, just say a pale Irish woman with deep jaundice. <laughs> just say 
I like redheaded Irish women with liver condition. <laughs> I mean, is she even an Irish woman if she doesn't have liver conditions? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so we get from there. Twenty-one. Speaking of uh, potential body problems, we get twenty-one trying to go to the bathroom still. But when he gets to the bathroom, it's occupied. And who's inside? But hatred. Hatred is inside and is not opening the door. He says it's occupado, at which point 21 hops on his comm and sends a message to 24. Hey, we've got a 2317, right? 2319. And he's like, I don't even know what those numbers are. Just get up here. All right. So they have a police style code for another villain taking a deuce in your primary arches home? That explains why there are so many numbers. Like, they're already up to, it's like, 2319, <laughs> right? Like, you know, I imagine we've got rule number one, which thankfully was not, uh, rule number one was very strictly observed by Brock earlier. Uh, but, you know, maybe rule 2319 is, uh, you know, hey, okay, this is a situation we encounter pretty frequently. We need a code for this. <laughs> or maybe the ending 19 mentioned specifies that it's in a bathroom and 23 spe uh, specifies that it's a potential threat. So it could be like 2306 would be potential threat in the kitchen or 2342 would be potential threat in the observatory. Okay. Interesting. I mean, I like that. I'd, is it a potential threat if we don't know what he's had, though? Like, like <laughs> I get it. It's, it's, it's <laughs> what you have for dinner? No, no, 26-19. Right, like, you know, oh, pierogies again? Oh, Lord. Uh, <laughs> How parochial. So uh, from there, we get to what is probably my favorite scene in the entire episode. And this is where Brock has taken the family to connect with some previous OSI agents that he got from Hunter's List. They're walking out onto a dock. They're approaching a boat. And this is where we get Shore Leave and Mile High, who no longer identify by those names. Shore Leave, of course, got kicked out of the service on a don't ask, don't tell violation, which I love that he's like, oh, do we know he can keep a secret? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for anyone who may not know, don't ask, don't tell, was a military policy in the 90s that sounded progressive at the time. Just to give you a sense of how far we've come, the premise of uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was to counteract people who thought that anyone who was gay or identified as anything other than heterosexual didn't deserve a place in the military. There was no room for them. Uh, someone should certainly have told the Navy well in advance. But what this meant was that don't ask, don't tell uh, essentially said you can't ask anyone about their sexual preference and no one should say what their sexual preference is. It shouldn't come up. Soldiers should under no circumstance ever talk about sex. Imagine how that. Yeah, I imagine not well. Well, I mean. One if of those you've seen things. that movie Jarhead, like, all you've got to do in, in during, like, uh, as far as I know, like, all you had to do during, like, you know, the, the first Gulf invasion was, you know, jerk off and wait for, like, oil fields to blow up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and it's always one of the interesting things, too. Like, uh, so I've put together a lot of care packages for the military, and there are two things that you're not allowed to send. Uh, I mean, there's actually a lot of stuff you're not allowed to send, but uh, two things in particular that any serviceman uh, would more or less be happy to receive, specifically booze 
and poor. You can't put those in a care package. Even uh, do though, you even do you even care about the soldiers at that point? <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, here's this uh, here's this triple A calendar. I know this is what you really wanted. Listen, I know that like coffee and cigarettes are part of the rations, but uh, porn will rot your mind. Right. <laughs> so we get uh, our introduction to Sky High, or sorry, Mile High, who is now Sky Pilot, and Shore Leave, who is now Holy Diver, which is, of course, a reference to a heavy metal band, right? Uh, really? Is that, is that Ronnie James Dio? That's a Dio reference? Yeah. Because uh, the way I uh, know about um, Holy Diver was this is, we talk a lot about the writing the checks that, you know, they sometimes they don't know they're going to cash. This is one of the ones that they had an inkling that they knew they were going to cash. Uh, during the season two commentary, they talk about, like, you know, creating a, a G.I. Joe-type sailor called, you know, uh, whole, like, Shore Leave or Holy Diver. Um, and they even, like, toss around the catchphrase, which we get here in just a little moment. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of those, lo and behold, if you listen to the commentary uh, and then you watch this air in its natural progression, now you're on the inside of a joke, right? Like, now you're... You're really in the, you know, Ventureverse. Uh, you're in the studio at Astro Base Go with those guys at that point. And it, it definitely, it, that's a big part of my attachment to uh, Shore Leave, aside from the fact he's, you know, just ultimately badass. Um, and it's a weird thing to think about uh, George Michael wrapped up in a Ronnie James Dio reference. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, question. Uh, with Sky Pilot, and Holy Diver, or Shore Leave and Mile High. Uh, if there were to be a live-action show, that who would play these two? Uh, all right, I Terry think Neil Pat I was going to say Neil Patrick Harris for, uh, you know, Holy Diver slash Shore Leave, and then Terry Crews yep. for Mile High slash Sky Pilot. Really? Yep. Uh, Terry Crews has the comedy chops for it. I'll say that. Like, he really does. Um, I watch a lot of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and uh, he has different episodes where, you know, he's kind of the, the straight man on the bit, and then he has episodes where he's kind of the goofball on the bit, um, and so I think, you know, he's got the comedic range to, to really pull off Sky Pilot's, like, uh, you know, cover issues, right? And the way that they talk about it in the commentary uh, for this particular episode is, you know, obviously you find out that this is a, a long-term cover, but more so you find out that, you know, Mile High actually did buy into the, the Christian thing. Like, you know, this is something that really touched his life. Whereas Shore Leave very much is like, you know, uh, this is just cover. Like, <laughs> there was no praying the gay away here. Um, and well, you still are unsure about how Mile High reconciles that because his sexuality doesn't come back up outside of referencing praying the gay away. And then, well, like... Uh, it's one of the things like, oh, yeah, Jesus slew our demons of homosexuality. <laughs> well, and they bring it up later, right? Like, uh, he totally calls him out. I was like, you know, when I was pretending to be gay, and he was like, yeah, and I was pretending to like sleeping with you every night. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, it would totally be like, 
I think Terry Crews could handle the oiled onyx physique of of Sky Pilot. So the only one I would uh, the only one other one I would throw out there is maybe Sean Hayes for um, uh, for shore leave. Um, yeah, that would be my. I think he's got the voice down a little bit better, and that like uh, if you watch Will and Grace at all, the Jack Sass. Kind oh, dude, absolutely. Got, it totally rung of that to me. I was like, they had to have seen at least bits and pieces of this because it really kind of felt like they were pulling uh, bits of Jack for shore leave for sure. And yeah, I but could you like, see him getting into that shape though? Like getting that's the, into only, that's like, the only reservation I have about it. But I feel like voice wise, which for me would be more important. Yeah, the uh, personality. Yeah, the personality I think would ring truer. Whereas I feel like it's way too easy for Neil Patrick Harris to fall into uh, bro kind of a thing. I know it's what he did for a long time, and it just would kind of stick in my head that way, where I feel like, yeah, I think Sean Hayes would nail it just a little bit different. Uh, I think Hugh Jackman could pull this off. I also think that uh, Anthony Mackie could totally rock Sky, uh, Sky Pilot. Yeah, I, I'm with you on Anthony Mackie. I like that, too. So, uh, with that digression... We have been introduced to these two ex-OSI agents who are now no longer in the killing business. They're in the All right, I'm done processing business. this. How dare you uh, fan cast Hugh Jackman as shore leave? How dare you, Karen? <laughs> I'm just, that's all I had to say. I'm are you suggesting he couldn't do it? I, it's not a matter of couldn't do it. It's he's too busy being locked up in a hundred dead water coffins from liquid lynching. <laughs> <laughs> You're just mad because he'd be amazing. So uh, we've got, we've been introduced to our ex-killers. They're no longer in the killing business. They're in the saving business, Brocodile. And they can't help him because they've got Bible dive followed by parasailing through Corinthians. <laughs> <laughs> That's Which, when I wonder our, what that's like. That's when our like, second killer shows up, Sturgeon, all right? And he is uh, tossed a line, and the bobber isn't a bobber. It's essentially a mechanical frog that hops over, essentially grabs Brock and drops a, or, I'm sorry, drops a grenade in, and then he's got a frog lure. And I wondered if this wasn't just a throwback to, like, if the frog references aren't just a concrete, uh, like, cameo, so to speak. Because uh, we've got the frog that grabs onto Brock and then wraps him up so that our nemesis, our nefarious aquatic assassin, can drag him into the water. Taking off in his motorboat, dragging Brock behind him. And then we get a fantastic set of intercuts here where we've got, and this is one of the things Adventure Brothers does so well, uh, parallel tracks happening simultaneously. And we'll see this explicitly laid out in the entire first third of the next episode. Uh, but in this particular moment, Brock's taken off, and the family wants Sky Pilot and Mile High, or Sky Pilot and Holy Diver, to help them out, at which point they spring into action because they aren't just mild-mannered Bible instructors. They are the soulmate. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and uh, actually, uh, I'm really impressed with, with Vaudevillain on this one um, because uh, I was familiar with Bible Man, but he really did the deep dive into the reference of Bible Man, like uh, the, the Willie Ames character um, and, and kind of like where this whole thing comes from. Because, again, 
if you're right, that, that's fairly obscure. If you're not into, you know, the, the, the Christian media circles, you might not have seen Bible Man to, to get the reference here, you know. Um, and, and, you know, Vaudeville can definitely tell us more about the uh, tragic trajectory of Willie Ames. So uh, I knew absolutely nothing about this beforehand. Like you said, this is really kind of an obscure reference, but I did my deep dive today, and um, there's facts here, and some of it I'm just sort of implying from what I'm reading. Uh, Bible Man had a total of 49 running episodes. They were all approximately 40 minutes running. Um, it was created by Tony Salerno in 1995. Um he was essentially um, centers around an evangelical hero who fights evil, often quoting scripture. Um, it basically also had a secondary version of the character that ended up coming up at some point, and it had this hysterical backstory of, like, he heard his parents arguing about, like, fast food or something. Uh, so they did do a... There was a second one that had a, like, tragic backstory as well that seemed completely completely garbage. Uh, but the live action one was done by an uh, actor named Willie Ames, uh, who I dug back on him a little bit, and he, he went all the Charles way back. Was Char Charles in charge. Was he, uh, uh, I've got Odd Couple in here, Gunsmoke, uh, Wonderful World of Disney, Adam 12. He was Walton's. Uh, the amount of different things he was in was kind of staggering, really, for the fact that I had never come across his name. But unfortunately, Bible Man was the end of his career. He decided to go ahead and hang up those uh, boots and uh, 2003 here, and then he never acted again. Um, you know, so he'll I'm come back to the part, just like Michael Keaton. <laughs> Like, Michael Keaton, like, he hated being Batman, but then he came back and did Vulture. So, like, he's going to come back, and instead of being, like, Bible Man, he's going to be, like, you know... Darwin Man! Yeah, like, you know, the, uh... <laughs> like, the, the mad scientist, you know, Dr. Sin or something, like... Oh, and then it just, they ended up following up with the series after they stopped with the original run, and they've recently started doing a live, or, um, an animated series where now Bible Man has um, a full team going on here where it's got, like, uh, there's, like, a little blonde girl, um, a little brunette girl, and then now he does have a little bit of diversity on his team. Um, oh, there's a redhead. <laughs> well, I mean, that's unusual for Christian television because well, he has, it's, a young, it's a young black male. There's a young black male on his team now. So now he's got a little bit of cultural diversity going on. They're trying to be a little bit more progressive. And I think it said it came out in late 2000. Yeah, I, I, I don't care. I have way too much fun on this. He's only three-fifths of the way to Captain Planet. Until then, you don't count, bro. <laughs> So you know, this is where we get to probably my favorite point in the entire season or the entire episode. And this is the, the Bible man reference because the soulmates enter in and prepare to receive the secrets of Ephesians, right? And uh, the, uh, the Ephesus secret, Ephesians secret. So uh, uh, Sky Pilot runs over to the command console and Holy Diver runs over and stands on this, this podium. Right, like uh, a platform. This raised, yeah, this raised plinth, and it says Ephesian secrets engaged, boots up the gospel, and then it gets consistently weirder. Codpiece of truth, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, uh, shield of the faith, and sword of the spirit. 
and this takes forever, right? Between each piece, there's this whole, like, forming Voltron thing that happens in order for it to, like, actually arrive on him out of this, like, nebulousness. And then eventually, after forever, right? And even the boys are like, is this going to take long? He's like, oh, ye have need of patience. He gives him, like, eight Bible verses. This is the <laughs> slowest armoring up. Like, Bible Man could, if Bible Man was doing this, the entire episode would have been those three kids getting their shoes on to get ready to walk outside. Oh, dude, yeah, no, this is some straight up uh, Dragon Ball Z season finale style, like, <laughs> drag out. <laughs> oh, man, and of course, like, everything, you know, cod piece of truth, hammer of joyous justice, circumcision of ouch. Right. <laughs> well, and the best part is once they finally get all suited up in this like incredible looking armor, this flaming sword that looks like Michael's, you know, you see, you hear, you, you read about it in the Bible, then they just like begin to pray. Yeah. It's like, all right, it's time to go bust some heads. And then they drop to their knee and they're like, Lord, give us strength in this hour of need. It's like, what are you guys doing? Uh, The power of prayer can move mountains, Hank. Yeah. (laughs) Now, while all of this is going on, we keep getting intercut with Brock hooked on uh, this line and being dragged to the ocean. Uh, Then our assassin is dumping chum on him as he's being dragged behind in order to draw the sharks out. The sharks are coming, and this is the end of Brock Samson, except when the shark comes, Brock gets his arm free manages to like grab the shark there's this big struggle and it looks like the rope is cut. there's blood in the water now and you see a body float to the surface brock Sampson's shirt and his hair are on this body so our assassin swings around driving the motorboat toward him with the intent intent to kill him but what he doesn't realize and what we don't know until this moment is that Brock has managed to escape, has swum, swam, swum, having swum, swim, swammed, swammed, happy <laughs> over to the, uh, what is the past tense of, like, sw- swam? Uh, having, I, I only doggy pad. <laughs> right? Having doggy styled over to a buoy. He's actually stretched the fishing line across, and as our villain is driving to go kill what he thinks is the body of Brock Sampson. He is decapitated by the shark that was dressed in Brock Sampson's clothes when Brock pulls the fishing line, raising the shark out of the water above the windshield, right where Sturgeon's head was once attached to his neck. And this harkens back to uh, the training sequence you see in Assassin Any 911. So not only do you see him, like, this isn't even a hammerhead shark, number one, like, whatever. And number two, uh, like, he, you can tell that there's a, a mild, you know, uh, sophistication that has happened in between, you know, here and there. So not only did he defeat the shark in the first one, ride it out of the water, right? But in this one, he's turned the shark into a trap. He has field cut his mullet off and put it on the shark. I mean... Just how does that work? How do you get the hair to hold the initial position without some skin to hold it together? He uh, did the same kind of cut that Hannibal does in the end of a uh, science of the uh, Lambs. Yeah, it was the same move. Uh. <laughs> you know, well, in my mind, uh, Brock Samson's like mullet is a lot like the golden fleece. Like you shear it like a sheet, and it's actually. Uh, it's bulletproof. That's why you'll never see anybody shoot Brock in the head. Because uh, the, the, Brock's mullet is a lot like uh, Chuck Norris's beard. 
Behind it lies another fist. Yeah. <laughs> Bingo. So what does Brock do to celebrate his victory? Uh, he quotes the Old Testament. Yea, that you have covered my head on the day of battle as he scoops the assassin's hat out of the water and places it on his head. Um, we have encountered some biblical stuff previously, uh, thanks to General Manhours' uh, celestial appearance at the end of uh, that one episode. Well, and, and I did read more about it in the Bible. Yeah, and uh, you know, which led me to the question. Uh, by the way, that book is that book is fucked up, man. Have you it read is that? Not appropriate for kids. Yeah, spoiler alert. Uh, we're it's happening right now. <laughs> Um, so we have touched on this previously, and this actually left me with a little bit of a question. Is one of the writers a deeply devout Christian in that, like, I feel like this is being referenced not snarkily. It's tongue-in-cheek, but it's not dismissive as such. Uh, I, I get the same impression. I, I definitely feel like uh, that this is more... You know what? They Actually, you know what? It's, it's hard to call. Um, because Doc Hammer does his painting of sad women in bras that he calls the saint. Um, and they're all kind of modeled on like a, you know, a Virgin Mary, um, you know, style lighting and, and, and pose and stuff. Um, but also like, uh, you know, Jackson Public uh, had a relatively like you know uh typical childhood in uh jersey um and you know for the most part like uh there's a large catholic contingent there and you can definitely get an idea of like reformed catholic you know sure maybe he's like not so hard on the knees in mass anymore but like you know he he still carries the faith you know speaking of hard on the knees uh our next scene is Hatred sitting on the toilet, pants down around his ankles, and tattooed down to his codpiece. And Dr. Mrs. the Monarch is in there with him. Uh, hopefully, he did not have Perot. And uh, Sheila is telling him that they are taking away his arch. But does Hatred care? No. Hatred wants to die. He wants Doc to kill him. He doesn't care about the arch per se. He is incredibly upset because he's convinced Princess Tiny Feet wants to leave him. So Sheila wants to know how he knows, so he pulls out his cell phone to show her the text he got. And he has an old Vietnam-era, like, like radio phone. Uh, which, <laughs> I mean, it, it's massive. She's like, this is a big phone. He's like, I'm a big boy! New airstrike, who dis? Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's when we see the text in question. It just says... We need to talk. Now, have you ever gotten the we need to talk text, or have you been the person who said we need to talk? Uh, normally speaking, because I know that that phrase comes charged and fully loaded, I always preface we need to talk like by with like I always use that to preface uh, something mundane or stupid or like you know uh, yeah we need to talk. Uh, you are wearing way too much plaid these days. You know, things like that. I never, because again, the second you see that, you hear it in your head. It almost sounds like the law and order noise, the dun-dun. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> so I always avoid that phrase uh, just because, um, again, like, you're, you're immediately girding somebody for a bad, like, for a bad situation. <laughs> How about you, Vaudevillain? Um... I haven't gotten the full-blown hatred version in a long time. I've been with um, Mrs. Vaudevillain for about 
13 years now, so it's been a while since I've had that one, but she probably gave me a few of those in the first two or three years of the relationship, so, uh... No restraining order can keep your love away. No, no. Well, and then there's, there's, there's that level of terror. I know exactly what he's talking about. You're just, all of a sudden you see that and you just, uh, he's at least on the toilet, but you crap your pants, so... (laughs) (laughs) uh... Well, and like, the worst part about it is, you start running like through your mind in all the things it could be, but you don't want to bring it up in case it's not that thing. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's so like it wasn't somebody's name in a social situation when you should know, you just completely forgot. You're like, <laughs> hey, is this about that thing? What in particular? <laughs> like, no, no, I, yeah, that's exactly what I meant. Yes, that's it. Yeah, Bob. So. <laughs> From there, it's not I, about uh, the credit card receipts, right? Cool. Yeah. We're good. <laughs> my uh, my oldest, Ha Wan, uh, he was in preschool, and uh, at one point, one of his little schoolmates walked up to her father, who was standing next to my wife. You know, this big class party. I think it was Halloween or something. And she walked up to her dad and was like, "Dad, we need to talk." And I was like, "Okay, where's this going?" And she's like. Hunter is very concerned. And I'm like, now my, my, my radar is like, I am zoned in. I'm like, oh, God, what's going on? About vampires. <laughs> Dude, I totally had one of those moments. Uh, my six-year-old clone sat me down, and uh, he had to talk with me uh, because I didn't like pancakes that morning. <laughs> and uh, apparently uh, that is almost that, that's like after-school intervention behavior in my oh, home. Right. <laughs> So Sheila and Hatred have been in the bathroom. Lord only knows what's happening there. He's obviously still in the middle of things uh, because we we actually hear a little bit of the uh, drama unfolding uh, when he gets scared, so to speak. Now, from there, we realize that it's the whole uh, we have to talk element that is giving him so much trouble. And this sets up why he is sitting in Doc's house, because he wants Doc to kill him. He is so upset. And then we bounce over to Brock and the Venture Brothers and Doc walking into a crappy hotel room and setting up what is going to be the big showdown of the episode. Now, let's talk for a second about what Brock is wearing, because he needed to change of clothes, didn't he? <laughs> uh, and... and... I mean, I guess it's still kind of a fad that's going on, but like the the gym pant with the lettering right over the butt. Uh, juicy. It, juicy, man. Um, and, and like the best part about that was, uh, you know, later on in the episode, he's going to call out somebody for their wardrobe. And it's like, have you even seen what you're wearing, bro? <laughs> <laughs> he is wearing a Brisby t-shirt. And pink pants, yeah, with juicy written on the butt, and uh, he's got his uh, he's got his hat on, and he comes into the hotel room, and the boys, of course, are excited as any kids are when they get into a hotel room. They jump straight on the bed. Uh, they want to jump around, watch TV. This is exciting for them. Brock just wants to take a shower because he is covered in blood and chum and salt. And Doc runs straight into the bathroom to go take a bath himself. Brock, dismayed, is like, fine, I'm going to go get supplies. At which point, Doc asks if he can pick up some conditioner. Now, Doc has no hair, so the conditioner, he clarifies, is for his beard. Now, from then, we bounce back to uh, 21 and 24, standing outside the bathroom door. Ah, that uh, that rhymes. Hey, I'm a poet, and I wasn't even aware of it. So... 
uh, 24 is giving 21 an update. And this is actually where we get one of my favorite lines in the entire episode, where he 24 is trying to explain to 21 what's going on, and then he's quoting hatred as saying, I, like Patty Smythe before me, will die a warrior. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, for those of you unfamiliar with Patty Smythe, uh, uh, vaudevillain or beast, can we get a little context here? Uh I love the way that the the man with like the vast music knowledge immediately checks out to someone else. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, she was um, kind of in that that uh, post punk crowd. She was with Scandal. Uh, Scandal. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and one no, of their um, biggest songs was uh, one of their biggest albums. I'm sorry, songs was Warrior. Well, and that's actually the uh, theme song for Glow. <laughs> 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 the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. That yeah, is hey, a man, uh, The Netflix pull. series for that is amazing, by the way. Anything that's the um, Allison Brie vehicle, I am all down for that. Anything with Allison Brie, just keep it coming. Right. Well, and uh, I even picked up a couple of issues of the comic, and that was really uh, amazing. And uh, done by a lady named Teeny Howard. And Teeny Howard actually lived in Wilmington for a long time. Oh, nice. Um, Did until we party very- with her and didn't know it? No, she was post our era. Um, she actually worked at a comic shop that started up after we left uh, called Nerdvana. Nice. Um, yeah, and uh, great shop, cozy little place downtown. Yeah, no, uh, I, I love that there was a lot of local talent. Of course, like anything good, she like she got too good for Wilmington and bounced. Uh, <laughs> so she went to L.A. <laughs> um, wow, yeah, some, but... some people have the opposite experience. <laughs> Like yeah, you're you're growing backwards, Jason. I'll say that. Well, I mean, dude. So Wilmington has the uh, has the largest theater east, or the largest soundstage and studio east of Hollywood. And so you've got a ton of productions that take place in Wilmington. Uh, well, and it used I, to be true up until uh, oh, until they got rid of the uh, the incentive. The well, the incentive, and then uh, that right before the incentive, like you know, that decade before. Uh, Georgia production really kicked up, um, and that's where, like, you know, uh, I, I mean, a lot of Adult Swim shows were uh, initially started in Georgia, and now, like, I want to say FX has a production studio there, because, I mean, uh, they've got Atlanta, like, that's made in Georgia, they've got uh, no FX, way stuff like that, but, right, <laughs> uh, I mean, FX, they've got Archer, uh, that's animated in Georgia. Yep. Uh, it's going to be a shame when we're looking back 20 years from now and be like, oh, you remember when Wilmington had a film industry? <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, man, Blue uh, Velvet was a thing. Is that right? So, uh, Patty Smythe, that's that reference. And then we bounce back. Uh, oh, wait, before we bounce back, Monarch decides he's going to go back for the cocoon. And Dr. and Mrs. the Monarch is like, I'm not going to say I told you so, which is the passive-aggressive way of saying I told you so. And we also learn that 21 still needs to pee. Now we get back to Doc in the bath, right? Uh, Hank decides he's going to step out front, and there is a man standing out there with a towel wrapped around his loin. And Hank says that he is in love with that Batman towel. Who is he talking to? Liture. That's right. We get a little bit of uh, their conversation, and this is where Hank is saying, uh, I used to dress up as Batman, and Latour's like, oh, I used to go up on my rooftops in Paris and pretend I was the Bat. And Hank's like, 
I'm pretty sure I dropped, I jumped off of my roof. Right? <laughs> and what that I, was, uh, that's one of my favorite, like, Venture Brothers, like, visuals, is that just 2.5 seconds flashback of that one time where he did it. And somebody actually Photoshopped that into the Dark Knight Returns with, like, <laughs> Hank Bat holding the umbrella, the lightning strike. Like, <laughs> Man, I got to tell you, Venture Brothers has inspired some truly amazing fans, um, of which I will not claim to be one, but I will do my part. Um, oh, and actually, I, I don't want to skip this line. He says, when he was, uh, when Latour says, oh, when I was your age, I'd go up on the rooftops. And then Hank follows up with, when I was my age, I jumped off the roof. <laughs> like, I loved that line. He's like, or, or maybe I just dreamt it. Uh, which is pretty much, yeah, you died. And this actually brings up a question I had. How would he have dreamt that? How could he have known that have, if it was a I different clone no. bug? Yeah. Like, is, did he somehow, at what point are the memories not being captured from the learning beds to then go back into the boys so they wake up same day? Like, there's no way that, because what I've always figured is every night when the boys go into their learning beds, they all the memories get downloaded, and that's the progression of the boys' lifespan or lifetime. Um, and every time that they have to reboot, they get rebooted from that day. How does he, like, has he literally tried to jump off roofs so many times now that it's just imprinted as, like, a, a, a background memory that he can't okay. get Okay, I have a like, retcon that might like work. Where birds know how to go home, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a retcon that might work. What if the learning beds are like Wi-Fi, where... Even if you're farther away from it, you can still get some signal. It just doesn't, you know, it's just distance doesn't work. They're so if he was jumping... They're doing a version of that in X-Men right now. So X-Men has uh, this whole resurrection system built on, like, a telepathic link. My theory is that Doc is not afraid to put a half, you know, a live Hank or Dean into <laughs> a learning bed. Like, you and I both know that that fall would not immediately kill you. Like, I mean, we've seen pictures of the compound plenty of times. That, I mean, would the internal, like, bleeding eventually get to you? Yeah. So I think on some level, the reason Hank has that, like, if we're working with the evidence we have, right, if we're doing the Sherlock Holmes method, then this is the only possible way <laughs> that this works. You know, I, I wonder if the learning bed doesn't have some type of, like, pee or liquid or fluid filtration system. He's like, oh, he's bleeding all over the place. Stick him in the bed. That'll, that'll clean it up. Oh, dude, well, oh, you know, it uh, opens straight up into the, uh, you know, the panic room. So <laughs> they just drop all the blood there, hose it off. And I'm, I'm sure the panic room has, like, a central drain. Like, really, what's the difference between panic room and murder room? <laughs> Somebody's panicking in there. Right. Well, and, of course, it could also be the cower in place room, uh, which we will see a little bit later. So we've got uh, uh, Hank talking to Latour. And Latour, of course, has no idea who Hank is. Hank has no idea who Latour is. But then Brock shows up and know, knows exactly what's going on. And we get that, like, Wild, wild west, like eyes glaring at each other. Brock grumbles Latour. Latour grumbles Brock's name and then dashes out Batman's howl of flutter into his room while Samson makes his way up the stairs and around to Hank, who he had warned to get away from Latour. But what does Latour reappear as? He is in his full blown. Um... 
possible copyright infringement Craven the Hunter outfit at this point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's got the full-blown um, elephant head chest piece, the tiger belt, uh, cheetah wristbands. Um, he's got his well, awesome let's sport. talk about for a second, all right, elephants are, are large creatures, okay? This man is wearing an elephant head. We don't I'm know assuming, how old the elephant is. He, he yeah, like, I'm assuming <laughs> this is an actual elephant. That man killed a baby elephant. <laughs> Uh, and this he, was before, like, the, uh, you know, the Twitter and Instagram phase of, like, rich white folk going to Africa, you know, posing with dead giraffes and whatnot. So is Latour, like, friends with the guy from Jimmy John's? Like, have they spent some time on a boat doing some shark necrophilia bonding? <laughs> no, no, trust me. You should put the sandwiches on the baguette. Also, that gun is not going to take down that water buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they do use French bread. Bread so French it must be liberated. <laughs> <laughs> it's good trust, yeah? Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, there are some places that I experience a little bit of moral uh, anxiety when confronted with uh, patronizing. Uh, Jimmy John's is one of them. Uh, because, and, but the other part of me is like, you know, do we – you know, Jimmy John's has run on franchisees, right? So it's like, you know, how much of responsibility does any franchisee have to the guy who's doing all this stuff? On the other hand, it's like, well, why do I want to give this guy any of my money? See, normally I would completely agree with you, except for the one unique factor here. This man's name is literally on every franchise. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, the other one, another one is uh, uh, Chick-fil-A. Well, okay, is it, is it one guy or two guys? Is it Jimmy uh, and John? I thought, I, I, honestly, I, uh, I don't know. Uh, the impression that I had was that he started the business when he was in college, which, you know, hey, man, go, go get him. And it just so happens that he likes running around the world killing things, uh, which, I mean, hey, man, I, I've hired a pest control guy. <laughs> <You know>? And <laughs> The person who eats meat is on the same moral level as the person kills. So, you know, but again, you know, African elephants and like stuff like that. It's just, it, it sits weird. It just sits you never, weird. Never, yeah, no, it makes my stomach upset too. Elephant meat is really, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was talking with uh, my neighbors Especially who are baby Mormon. elephant meat, like veal elephant, but so good with cheese. Drash. I was talking to my neighbor and uh, he's Mormon. He was saying that he feels like there is a moral obligation to go to uh, Chick-fil-A. And I wonder mm. if Latour feels a moral obligation to eat at Jimmy John. Or maybe he was like, I have to, I have to vote Bush Cheney because that man likes to hunt <laughs> press secretaries. <laughs> <laughs> would you rather go carpooling with a Kennedy or would you rather go hunting with Dick Cheney? Uh, I will carpool with a Kennedy in a heartbeat. I would go hunting with Cheney. I think I could outrun the old guy. I mean, he's got a gun, but I, I, I've got swiftness on him. Man, you don't act like if there's nothing that that episode of Venture Brothers taught you, it should be that you don't outrun bullets. <laughs> Dude, all I can see, like, is totally Vaudevillain and uh, Dick Cheney out there, Phantom Limb style. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're just oh. sat there having a nice, calm conversation as he's, like, uh, menacingly <laughs> preying on me. Well, hey, man, he's preying on you and then preying over you. So. <laughs> We've got <laughs> Latour attacking Brock. They crash through the hotel room window and end up fighting on the bed. 
And Latour is ticked that Brock cut his hair. He's like, ah, oh, why you cut your hair? You had such a cool look. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that was actually a little bit of a trope for a little while. Uh, it's something they, they steered away from after a while, but uh, for a few season enders in a row, like season finales, uh, they, they got rid of Brock's mullet. Yeah, it, he definitely got rid of it for this one, too. And by mullet, we mean all of his hair. Well, and there was also another one with his look that had changed, and it was in the commentaries. I heard it was about this point in the episode they mentioned that they had noticed Brock's eyes used to be blue, and they did a full character redesign on him, and apparently when they were doing the full mock-up for the new season, uh, they forgot to put in the specs that his eyes were meant to be blue. Um, so I always kind of wondered if that was also a subtle quick nod to the fact that, because they were really angry with themselves for not noticing for literally what we're on episode 12 of the season now. They didn't notice until now that he actually had lost that. So uh, uh, Well, be... they mentioned they switched uh, animators. Uh, it was like in that... right there at the beginning uh, of the episode, too. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, and apparently it was a fun fan conspiracy there for a while. That uh, because like you know again the error in the uh, the the modeling um, that they thought that maybe this wasn't the real Brock that this oh. was in fact like you know uh, some sort of like you know Brock double or Brock clone. This um, is the clone Glock. Right. <laughs> Glock Branson. Mayhaps, perhaps they're fighting. Samson is unarmed. Latour is going in with his knives and blades. And uh, what is it that Dean? helps Brock do. Dean helps him uh, get to the Bible, right? And we get that yeah, line from the... Sky Pilot, this is the only weapon you'll ever need. Yeah, I mean, and really, if you've seen any, like, later Sean Connery action films, that man can show you what you can do with a book. Like, <laughs> I've seen some pretty impressive book fight scenes, and that's what I love about the Gideon's Bible. It's, it's good one-handed, hardy, hardback, like, you know... Yeah, I mean, Brock uses it very well. Can you imagine how awesome that scene would have been if Dean just happened to have his version of the Bible narrated by Mr. Darth Vader? (laughs) (laughs) Like, the the, the edges would be pointier. The edges would be pointier, and he could pull out the tape and, like, choke him with it. (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. See, my assumption was that he had CDs in a jewel case. Your assumption was that he had, like, reel-to-reel. Cassette? Oh, I mean, maybe even eight track. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, old reel to reel. Like you got to put it. It's the big circular <laughs> disc. You got to put on. So okay, on the uh, like if we're going that far back, then you know Harry Belafonte had a guest voice in this production. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> Who was he? Oh, I don't know. Like I'm just. <laughs> if oh. you're going to have like you know Mr. Darth Vader, like you've got to have like Harry Belafonte come in and do like Pharaoh. Or Kane's voice, like, right. oh, or Sidney Poitier. Yeah, right? Guess who's coming what? to Last Supper? Oh, <laughs> 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 oh wow, wow. Oh. What was it uh, from Janice Bob Bob Strike Back, the Black Apostle, Chris Rock's character? What was his Rufus. name? Rufus. Yeah. Rufus. So, um, <laughs> Brock starts hitting uh, Latour with the Bible, manages to, uh, I don't don't know if I'd call it the upper hand, but manages to escape the upper hand being on the other other foot. Uh, He manages to get out from underneath. 
Uh, and, of course, um, Latour springs up and talks about his sword, right? This sword was forged by Kitsune Mushihiro, who, you know, was the 18th Grand Swordmaster. And Brock is just like, why do you sword guys always have to talk about how cool your swords are? And that is a trope we see all the time. But let's be honest, if you're about to be killed by something, a little backstory help? Well, I mean, uh, what, that was like a, a series third of the Kill Bill movies was the, the Hanzo storyline. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, and that's not even actually going back into, like, the, the Japanese cinema with, like, the Toshiro Mifune movies and stuff like that. Um, but no, I mean, uh, it, it is kind of cool, but I will say it is, like, really vain. You know, uh, we see it culturally. Like, would he really, would Rock have said anything like that if this, like, were, if he were more Viking-themed and he was like, you know, this is Oath Splitter. Like, oh, okay, yeah, no, that's a very, like, Led Zeppelin-sounding name. That sounds awesome. Like, <laughs> well, there, I, I got to be honest, and I'm sure you guys have too. I have been guilty of this. There are some things that I'm so excited about that I will tell everyone I possibly can about them. Like, I have been guilty of this. Like, you know, Listen, you bring your girl over to your house. <laughs> right. You bring your like, girl over is... to your house, and you're like, Hey, baby, what you know about Amway? <laughs> Come on, baby, neutral life. So with that being said, uh, we get Latour using his cool sword to cut off Brock's nipple. Uh, and <laughs> then yeah, he's while, not feeding any baby kittens with that. No, while all this is going on, Doc is still in the bathtub. He has no idea what's going on. Uh, but we get a shot of him saying, this is quiet, boys. This is why Daddy has to drink to relax. And, of course, that's when Hank steps in with his contribution. He's not stepping in with the Bible. He's not stepping in with the good book. He's not stepping in with the moral code passed down through 5,000 years of beautiful tradition. No, no. He's stepping in with the moral code of the bat. What would Batman do? WWBD. And he starts asking, how can you truly love the Batman if you're willing to kill? And that's when Latour reveals the truth of his love of the Batman. And what is that, Tavad Villain? Uh, he's only into Batman for the villains, because Batman has the best villains. So now, not only is he, you know, kind of setting himself apart here, but he's also dropping a massive truth bomb. <laughs> Right. Uh, I was actually going to ask, because I know you guys are comic book nerds, and uh, for those of you who can't see, uh, Vaudevillain is actually framed in every one of his photographs by a large Batman sigil. Um, like, it is without a doubt whose favorite, uh, who Vaudevillain's favorite comic book character just might be. But uh, do you really think that it is the best rogues gallery in all of comics? I think he's got probably the best rogues gallery. There's an argument to be made for Spider-Man if you're a Marvel head, uh, primarily. I love to go bounce between the two uh, the two different worlds. I don't see the point in being a Marvel or DC fan. They love to bicker back and forth. But, I mean, you can't beat the combination of, of course, Joker's everyone's favorite, and then you get through the Penguins, the Banes, and everybody else, and it's just, it's top to bottom one of the best. You can't beat it. Spider-Man is made Maybe the closest rogues gallery that you can get that's even comparable in yeah. terms of like iconography um, because again like Batman's villains are, are just so incredibly recognizable and prolific uh, I mean even more so than I mean like you know lots of Superman's villains like he's really got the one right like you know everybody's like oh like Luther 
Of course, everybody will immediately name-check Joker to Batman, but then there's also, you know, the guy in the green suit, and then and, and the bird guy. And I mean, you know, even people it's who are in the books can, you know, name at least three or four or five, six Batman villains. All right, Bob Dylan, name um, four Superman villains. Uh, you got Brainiac, you've got, um, you're going to catch me off guard with See, this one. This right I mean, here okay, no, okay, you're going to go Apple. Specific, you go Mongol. A lot of his you go cosmic, and they could be potentially somebody else's villain at the end of the day, too. Um, Black Adam's a bad one for Superman. But, see, you really had to think about it. Yeah, you do. Yeah. You, have to, you know a Batman's villain is Batman's villain, whereas everyone else's villains, they could overlap. And there's definitely some ones where I'm really kind of upset with the fact that they haven't gotten around to doing a good one. There still hasn't been a good dark side on film. Uh, that's an amazing Superman villain. Um, uh, you haven't seen the animated films then? No, animated for sure. I've watched all the DCAU all up and down. I know the, that catalog. The DCAU is is the everything you wish the live action stuff could have been. The it DCAU is. is actually better in my estimate than the Marvel movies are. Yep. No, 100% agree. Um, I converted my wife to being a didn't even know who Superman really was from Batman to a full blown comic nerd because of basically the DCAU. And uh, some of the other DC animated properties. DC animated is where it's at. Nice. I converted I, I, my wife to Scientology, and she was less of a fan. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, like as a, as a dive in the wool Marvel guy, like the, the the animated DC stuff is is really kind of what keeps me in it in a, in a small way. Like even the the titles I'm currently reading. Uh, in fact, I'm actually reading more consistently at the moment DC titles for the first time in my life than Marvel titles just because of the quarantine. But like two of those is a uh, you know straight like one's uh, the Teen Titans Go, um, and then another one is uh, the Batman animated series continues, and that has been amazing. Like I really hope they do more stuff with that. Um, and more so, like, you know, uh, and you see him later on. Uh, Kevin Conroy is my favorite Batman. And he has a great spot, just a lovely little uh, ray of sunshine, so to speak. In the, <laughs> uh, and we'll get there all in due time. So, uh, also, I just, uh, I feel like I should have mentioned this earlier. Uh, Patty Smythe is not dead. <laughs> well, no, uh, it, here. Yeah, he was like. I will die like Patty Smythe before me, like a warrior like Patty Smythe before me. Patty Smythe is not dead. Uh, you know what? <laughs> do you remember? Um, do you remember the stake? Yeah. Yeah, where Doug was like, you know, I'm Doug and I'm out of here. And there's that one part where he's like, Dad, you know, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna die like Bob Dylan. And he's like, Bob Dylan's not dead. He produced my last three albums. Oh, you mean Uncle Robert? <laughs> Oh, yeah. man. And those guys have really gone on to do some wonderful stuff. They have uh, indeed. Speaking of wonderful stuff, we get Hank making his appeal. Latour reveals that he only likes Batman for the villain, and that was just enough of a distraction for Brock to grab Latour's sword. And you actually see Latour pulling the knife out of his belt to go in for the kill on Samson. But as he jumps in, Samson pulls up the sword and splits Latour in half. And not good half. Not like Darth Maul half. No, no, this is like Two-Face half. Oh, no, this is totally like, uh, God, what was it, that movie Kingsman? <laughs> <laughs> like, I had to rewind that like six times. <laughs> Like, what did I just see? Yeah, it's like straight down the middle, have, like vertical 
<laughs> and I think it starts at the groin. The angle on it looks like he gets hit groin first, and then he just, like, slides down onto the blade and then eventually is completely cut in half. So the thing I'd like to point out about this exact moment is Brock stands up in victory, uh, like, covered in blood. They're all covered in blood. Um, is that both boys help. Like, Dean gave him the only weapon he'll ever need, and Hank gave him the, the weapon he actually needed <laughs> by, by managing to distract uh, by managing to distract Latour. It brought, it brought Samson just enough time. So Dean is in absolute shock, but uh, kind of hands him his nipple. <laughs> Hank is completely nonplussed. He's like, and of course they're all covered in blood. Brock says to call nine one or you know they're like, oh we're gonna we should call nine one one. And Brock's like, no no no, take this book, look up the cleaner. Call and tell him we've got a Damien Hurst. Now, this, for those of you who are not, Von Villain is just laughing. So I, I take it you're familiar with the works of Damien Hurst. Uh, there was a spot in town here in Vegas that actually had, um, I, it might have been a replica. I don't know how you make a replica of the shark in a tank that's dead, but there was one of those up in one of the bars here, and I just cried laughing, took a picture and posted it onto the Venture Brothers group, and everybody who got it fucking died laughing at that one. <laughs> so Damien Hurst was a UK artist who was known for dead animal displays and, like, thin art. So, like, remember that art kit you got when you were a kid? Um Guess where that really was inspired by? A bunch of entrails. Uh, you know, but hey, kids can be creative with all kinds of things. I've seen my son. What's that? It's like, you know, uh, you see you say potential crime scene. I say, like, New Jackson Pollock. Well, and actually, this was something I wanted to bring up because there were other things that he could have said that would have made, I believe, a similar point. You know, it's always interesting to, like, the, the Oceans, it's like, oh, Susan B. Anthony or whatever, right? So what are some other levels of things that the cleaner would come in and know what he was expecting? You could get a Jackson Pollock, like maybe that would be an explosion, right? Like, oh, yeah, tell, we had an explosion, uh, you know, six people got caught in it, and uh, tell me we've got a Jackson Pollock. Or maybe, like, you walk in and it's, like, something out of the Saw movie. It's like, tell me you got a Francis Bacon. Or if it's really bad, you'd be like, tell me you've got a toddler painting. <laughs> I mean, it, it's like uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back. It's like, we've got a 3962. <laughs> ah, whoa, no, no. I wasn't even with a prostitute last night. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll yeah. just, like, shortcut that one. Like, that's the Ben Affleck. Yeah, right. Yeah, it is. We got an Affleck. Um, well, and okay, to be clear, like an Affleck, like a full Affleck, much like a full Rusty Venture, like we got to explain the whole thing here. Like if you've ever seen that movie, The Accountant, where he's blaring like hardcore black metal with the strobe lights, beating his shins with like a uh, like a rolling pin, right? Uh, except like his shins are baby seal. <laughs> <laughs> That's dark. <laughs> Wow, I think that was a verbal Damien Hurd. So uh, we. I get... mean, I used to go clubbing back in my day. <laughs> right. Hey, hey, is that an ohm? Uh, her, she was getting married the next day. <laughs> Yet another story we'll we'll have to put in our pockets for later. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, so uh, we get uh, from there. We get uh, Brock dragging the body and in, in two parts to the tub he gets in there doc comes out throws up and then there's a knock at the door and who is it but the police and it's amazing that they managed to get there in time because uh usually police responses in certain neighborhoods isn't very good 
but they well, got there. On top of that, it's really hard to get the three of them in one place. Uh, I've heard Sting really alienated the rest of the band. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's what happens when you spend like 40 years having one orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, seriously, one of my favorite gags here, they do a lot of playing with the name. Um, and so like the detectives that, uh, arrest, uh, you know, that burst through the door and, and arrest everybody. That's uh, Detective Collar and Detective Heat. Uh, because, again, that's, you know, very much, you know, from the the most uh, tropish, you know, detective lingo. Yeah, like uh, Doe and know, Cardholder. You, oh, dude, yeah, like, well, and again, those are supposed to be like, you know, generic government yeah. nobody. Yeah. And they even uh, make a joke about it, like, in, in the series, um, like in this couple of episodes, like on the commentary, where it's like they've got Mr. Doe and Mr. Cardholder, and if they have a third one, he's going to be Mr. Your Name. Right. And that's, yeah, and I, I'm, Your Name is who pops up later on in uh, OS I Love You. All right. Well, from there, we head into our credits. One of the unique things about this episode was that there was no stinger at the No time. Well, they are letting us know that we are launching right into our next episode, which will take place when we join you next time here on Conjectural Technologies, a venture industries podcast. I've been one of your co-hosts, Professor Brock Savage. With me, as always, is my longtime companion, Beast Lamode, and we were joined this week by a very special guest, Vaud Villain. And so, on behalf of all of us here at Conjectural Technologies, it is my pleasure to say to you all, Go, go Team Venture! I love you. <laughs> Conjectural Technologies Podcast is hosted, produced, and researched by me, Beast Lamode, Professor Brock Savage, and Vaude Villain. Edited by Beast Lamode and Vaude Villain. Intro music produced by Professor Brock Savage. Email us at conjecturaltechpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at conjecttech underscore pot and go team venture.